Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. are two different worlds. Marnie Levine, an executive at Facebook, made the transition in 2010 and had to learn to put her love of paper and memos aside. But her D.C. experience helped her excel in the tech world. In Silicon Valley, things move pretty quickly. And in scaling organizations, what you want to do is apply just enough process so that you can get the best of thought from everybody, but not so much process that you really slow everything down. And I think I brought some of those skills from Washington to Facebook when I started there in 2010. Marnie shares how she finds balance as a mother, wife, and executive, and discusses Facebook and Instagram's duty to empower women globally. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. So first off, I want to welcome one of our regular co-hosts, Holly Kuzmich. This is, I think, your, I haven't counted, but sixth, seventh, eighth time to do this. And as always, thank you. You're one of my favorites to do this with. Glad to be back. Don't tell the others that. (laughs) I'll keep it to myself. And so one of our favorite things to do on this podcast is pick the brain of people whose careers have really taken some unique turns and who've tackled big jobs, which brings us to Marnie Levine, who is currently the Vice President of Global Partnerships, Business, and Corporate Development at Facebook, previously serving as Chief Operating Officer at Instagram, and before that was in the Obama administration as Chief of Staff of the National Economic Council and Special Assistant of the President for Economic Policy. We can keep going back, but we only have so much time. Marnie, thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for having me. Those titles are mouthfuls. <laughs> I started, I took some notes. I don't even see my sheet of paper where I've got just lines that, that make sure I get those right, but took up an entire sheet almost. <laughs> right. Well, it's great to be here in the great state of Texas. Well, we're, we're glad you're here visiting from the great Silicon Valley, <laughs> which we'll, we'll cover here in a little bit. But your career began in the great city of Washington, D.C. at the Treasury Department. So how did you get started in policy and government? I actually think my career began in Cleveland, Ohio, which is where I was raised. Um, Growing up, I was always really interested in politics and policy. And then my senior year of high school, um, I got a job working for, it was an internship, working for the county commissioner, this woman named Mary Boyle, who is a real fireball. And that's really where I learned about the role that government could play in people's lives. And um, I was hooked immediately. And my job there was to um, research different proposals and to help work on casework and provide access to different kinds of, get people access to different kinds of social services that they needed, which was great. Uh, They also had me working on a solid waste management plan. I got really into that. (laughs) As one does. So much so that I was nicknamed Trash Queen Levine. (laughs) (laughs) that was a a fortunate set of a rhyming right exactly so that was the that was i think the kickoff to the career that's sort of where i got the so-called bug for politics and policy and so then after college i moved to washington dc and um i ended up getting a job at the treasury department this was before the internet so i didn't really fully understand or appreciate what the treasury department did But I knew that um, I wanted to have an impact on people's lives. 
And um, I thought that, you know, government was the best road to be able to do that. And that policy was kind of the best vehicle for doing that. And so working at the Treasury Department where we could work on low-cost basic banking accounts, financial privacy, things like that, I thought we could help improve people's lives and it was a great start. And Holly, you spent a long career in government as well. I did. I did. Yes. Thank you for pointing that out, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, did, Holly, did you kind of have a similar experience to that in, in, in your desires? Yeah. And, you know, I had a little bit of a similar experience. It was slightly later for me where um, I really had not been exposed to politics or policy as a kid that significantly other than what you just, you know, read in the news and, and learn in school. And then when I was in college, I interned in Congress. And that kind of bug is what really turned me on too and got me into policy work as well. Yeah. And you were... You you did legislative affairs, right? I did. I did policy work. And then I ended up doing legislative affairs at the end because I had worked in Congress. So once you work in Congress, they figure you know how to do, how to deal with members of Congress. Well, so. when I was at the Treasury Department, I started in the chief of staff's office. But then I would see people running up and down the hallway all day, running back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I would hear the click clack of heels on the, um, you know, on the marble floor. And I, I thought, what are they all doing? And then I realized that it was, you know, negotiations with Congress. And so I thought that's where I want to be. Like, that's where the action is working on working from the Treasury Department with people in Congress on different kinds of legislation. And so that's eventually where I moved to. Yeah, yeah, it was I was fun because I had worked on Congress and worked on legislation that I then had to go into the administration and implement. So seeing both sides of writing it and then implementing it was really interesting. And not a lot of uh, people, I think, have that experience of actually writing it and then having to go put it into action and figuring out what we did well and what you didn't do so well when you wrote a piece of legislation. It's different skills, different yeah. knowledge, and a different level of detail. Yeah. Yeah. So then in, in 2008, after spending some time in the Treasury Department, you joined the Obama transition team from the Bush administration, the Obama administration. And... You wrote about the the kind of exciting and difficult decision to take a position that really was going to suck away a lot of your time. How, how did you balance that in your life? Well, I had worked in the Clinton administration and I was in my 20s then and I knew how all consuming it was. So I was in a very different place in my life when Obama was elected. I was married. I had a three-year-old child, and then I had, um, I just had a baby. And so I was really interested in serving, and I was very grateful to even be given, you know, being given the opportunity to serve. And I wanted to do, play some small role in um, helping to address the Great Recession and the financial crisis that was going on. So I had a conversation with my husband. He said, we'll make it work. And I thought I was. But uh, what happened was pretty interesting for me. One morning, I had to go into the White House late because I had to take my then three-year-old son to the doctor's. And we were driving home from that doctor's appointment. And he, and he said, where are you taking me? And I said, well, I'm going to drop you at school. You're okay. And then I'm going to go to work. And he said, did you know that Matthew's mother drops him at school every morning? And I said, well, I don't know that Matthew's mother does that every morning, but I try to take you when I can. Now, there was at the White House, there's the 730 
a.m. senior senior staff meeting. And then there's the 8.15 a.m. meeting, which is the extended senior staff. And that was the meeting I was supposed to go to, but that conflicted with taking my son to school unless I took him really early in the morning. And um, so Monday morning rolls around after we'd had this conversation and he marches into our bathroom and he says to he says to me and my husband, so who's taking me to school today? Looking straight at me. <laughs> no pressure. And I said, well, daddy's going to take you to school. And he said, do you remember our conference on Friday when I told you that Matthew's mother takes him to school every morning? And I said, I do remember that. My husband looked at me and he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I think I'm going to need to take him to school in the morning. So it's interesting who your teacher's are in life. And in this case, it was him. <laughs> and what he was saying is, I need you in the morning, not in the evenings, which is what I thought. I ne- he needed me at dinner and he needed me for bedtime, but he really wanted me first thing in the morning. And so I marched into work that day and I told one of my colleagues that he would be attending the A15 meeting. He was thrilled. And I started taking my son to school. And I think what I learned through all of that is I could make it work. But this was much more about quality over quantity of time together and that I really needed to listen to the feedback that my kids or my husband were giving me about what they needed specifically. And once I was dialed into that, I was able to kind of make it all work. I got into the White House. I would get there every morning at about 9.15 in the morning, which is which is That's basically pretty late, for- pretty late. But the world still turned and it yep. all worked out. Yep. So, Marnie, after your time in government, you then went out to Silicon Valley, and I'm curious how you found that transition. They're two very different worlds. They're different, and then there are also similarities. So let's start with some of the differences. The obvious ones were the dress code. (laughs) I went from suits to hoodies, and um, that was a real transition. I'm wearing (laughs) jeans to work, and that was... That was definitely, but I've now adjusted. And um, I would say there was a difference in language, too. In in the government, we would always say, I'm going to write a memo. And <laughs> at Facebook, I still love a good memo, right. by the way. And at Facebook, there would be something that would look like a memo, but we would call it a plan. And there was, you know, in Washington, there was a lot of talk about fail, failure, legislation that had failed or, you know, didn't pass. And in Silicon Valley, there was lots of discussion about pivoting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Right. So there were differences. uh, There were, there were lots of differences in that regard. Um, And I would say the other very glaring difference was that in Washington, there is a love of paper and big binders full of paper. Yep. And in Silicon Valley, um, there's not a lot of paper around. I personally brought my love of paper with me to Silicon Valley and get teased mercilessly for it. Um, but I, I would say that the similarities are as, as follows. There are, I feel like in government, it's a collection of best and brightest. And it is a collection of people who are very mission focused and focused on doing good in the world and bringing about change. And I think that in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of that as well. A collection of really smart people who are mission driven and trying to do good in the world and affect people's lives in positive ways. I think the things that I brought with me from Washington were, um, you know, being able to peer around corners and 
identify risks. That's a skill that one develops in Washington. And also when you're trying to get something done in a big, vast government is that you need to have process and you need to bring all stakeholders to the table and have conversations and be able to synthesize that to come up with the best kind of policy recommendations. In Silicon Valley, things move pretty quickly. And in scaling organizations, what you want to do is apply just enough process so that you can get the best of thought from everybody, but not so much process that you really slow everything down. And I think I brought some of those skills from Washington to Facebook when I started there in 2010. Neat. Um, you obviously, you're a very senior woman um, uh, in Silicon Valley, and you and your friend and colleague, Cheryl Sandberg, have really been a, a promoter of women in the C-suite. Talk to me about that issue and uh, why you're passionate about it and what you encourage other women to do and how, how to how to think about their roles. Well, I think for me, it's all about connection and community among women. From the earliest days, I've always really enjoyed getting together with women. And, um, you know, just I've, I draw strength from that. And I've seen what happens with other women when they are connected. When I was in business school early on, there was a woman uh, in my section. We all didn't really know each other very well, and she had just gotten engaged. And so I suggested, hey, why don't we all get together and come over to my um, apartment and we'll, you know, toast Christine. But at the same time, you know, we'll get together and talk about things and get to know each other. And what was so interesting, you know, we made up at that point, I think less than 20% of the, of the class of our group. And when we, when we came into the, classroom the next morning, there were a lot more women who were speaking up, a lot more women who were building off of each other's comments, and they felt more confident. And so I think that was one of the times where I really saw how that connection and feeling of community could be empowering for other people. And then things like my book club, where we actually would read the book and discuss it, <laughs> but also became my, kind of my lean in circle. That, you know, Cheryl started yeah. the lean in circles. And that's really about relying on one another, connecting, sharing, and helping each other make important decisions in, in one's life. And I really drew strength from it. And I think other people did too. So when I got to Facebook, I tried to do things like create communities, safe spaces for women to talk and share and support one another so that when they were in these situations where, you know, they may not there weren't as many women represented, they would feel a sense of security and a sense of strength. So at Instagram, for example, I used to have all the women of Instagram over to my house and we would have different speakers and learn skills around negotiation. I'm telling you during that session, you could have heard a pin drop in the room. And um, I mean, nobody was looking at their devices, financial planning, but then also just a safe space to ask questions or talk about the things that were on their, you know, were on their minds. So I've tried to do that in different um, settings. I personally have been the beneficiary of that. You mentioned Cheryl Sandberg, she is very, very good at, you know, creating these forums for people to connect and, and um, share and mentor each other. And how have you thought about Facebook as a platform to connect women around the world and sort of take what you just talked about in your own life and do that? So I think it's, it's core to the mission. And because our mission really is all about 
connecting the world and giving people the power to create community. And so what Facebook does, what Instagram does, what WhatsApp does is gives voice to the voiceless. And so, you know, historically, women have been underrepresented in certain settings and therefore not had a voice. And so this really democratized voice for everybody. And one of my favorite things to do since I've been at Facebook from 2010 on, I've just celebrated my ninth face anniversary. That's what we call it. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Is, is really going around the world and meeting different people who use our products and services in different ways. And the people who I've been most inspired by have been women who have, are using it in different ways. One, this woman, uh, Lola, um, after the nearly 300 girls were kidnapped, um, by Boko Haram in Nigeria, um, started this, um, this group called Female In, or it's shorthand for, or long version is, shorthand version is Finn. And um, that group now has 1.5 million people in it, but it's a group that is dedicated to storytelling, tell, for women to tell stories about sexual violence, um, physical abuse, and the same storytelling that was was being used by men to suppress women is now being used to empower women to connect with each other, to share. And um, it's incredible, this community that she set up and she's doing this on a volunteer basis, but it can also be a tool for starting businesses, whether, you know, it, this woman in Australia, um, Samantha, who started Hob Australia, she drew a, 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 a picture of a rocking chair on a napkin and she started to produce this rocking chair for, um, she was about to have a baby and that business that turned into a thriving business or take a woman, Sheikha Issa in Dubai, where it's hard to be a young woman who is cooking and, you know, starting a business, but through, uh, Facebook, Instagram, she was able to post photos of her daily creations. She would name it like the Tex-Mex burger and <laughs> she'd include the WhatsApp phone number. And then people were ordering burgers and she was sending them out and she has 50,000 followers. And so she has a thriving business. She She's on cooking shows now. And so it's amazing to see how these platforms have really enabled and empowered women to do great things that they might not have otherwise been able to do. And what we've long said at the Bush Institute, too, is that when you empower women economically, you're not just empowering that woman. It's, it, it trickles to the whole family and, and that women invest so much of their income into the family globally. Absolutely. So, Marnie, one of the, the another topic we wanted to touch on you with is that you recently put a uh, post on an ins on Instagram that uh, at the age of four you experienced hearing loss. And, have, and that's something that you've been working through your, your whole both life and career specifically. Why did you decide to, to kind of quit? ignoring it and really seek out help and, and really take it on, take it head on? Well, I experienced hearing loss at age four and I spent the bulk of my life managing for this in all kinds of ways that I don't even think I realized I was doing. So when I would go to a birthday party, I would strategically place myself next to the birthday girl because I knew all the energy was going to be coming in that direction. And then I wouldn't miss the whispers, particularly at a slumber party. In school, I would sit in the front row so I could lip read, you know, the teacher. And in meetings, I would strategically place myself across from whoever was going to be doing most of the topic, most of the talking so that I could hear and see what people 
were saying. And um, it was I, one day, mostly, I think, because I started going out more being more external and doing public speaking and there would be Q&A sessions and I was really afraid of not hearing what people had to say. And so I went to go get hearing aids. I'd seen that instead of being these big clunky things, they were now very sleek and unobtrusive. And so I went in and I got them and I uh, tried them. And honestly, as soon as I did, I wondered what took me so long because it was like the clouds parted and the sunshine came in and I could suddenly hear. It was amazing. And I'll tell you, I went into work and I was so excited and I saw my colleague, Joel Kaplan, who's on the board of, you know, of the Bush, the Bush Center. Center. And, um, and I said to him, you'll never believe what just happened. I just got hearing aids. And he said, good, because you can't hear a darn thing. <laughs> and he had never told you that? He hadn't said, well, he would hear me in meetings and I would say, what, what, you know, what did they just say? What did they just say? And he was very gracious, right? you know, and generous and would right. tell me, but he didn't want to call attention to it. Right. So he got up, he gave me this hug and he said, I'm really glad that you got this help. So now what I really try to do is talk about it all the time to, because I saw what happens when... I talk about it, that it destigmatizes this because for whatever reason, I felt like it was a weakness. It was a, it was something that I had somehow done wrong. And I didn't understand that until I started talking about it and getting the reaction and response from people. So now, I mean, just recently I had a colleague come up to me and she was very upset and emotional. And she said that she was losing her hearing. And I said, let's go get you help. You know, if somebody couldn't see the, you know, the board, you go get glasses and no one thinks a thing about it. Why does it feel different if you have hearing loss? Let's get the, you know, let's get the hearing aids. It will change your life. And so I want people to feel like they can get the help and the support that they need. Well, finally, we're almost out of time. And one of the things that we love asking our guests as they come through is is one of two questions that, that are kind of standard for us. And one we want to pop at you is, what are we as a nation not talking enough about that we should be talking about? So I've been thinking a lot about kindness. And here's the reason. I am the mother of two boys, as I mentioned before, um, 14 and 11. And if you look at the headlines in the news these days, it is filled with talk of dictators and dividers, bots, bullies, nastiness, name calling. I mean, there's all kinds of things like this in the headlines, which can make for some challenging conversations at the dinner table. And I want them to grow up in a world where we're making progress and where we're making change and where we are creating a better world for them and other people. And I don't think that you can do that unless there's kindness because the absence of kindness means that people are afraid to come out and get together and try to find common ground. And so, and the kind of kindness I'm talking about is not sunshine and rainbows. It can be where you have hard conversations, where you give 
the brutal, honest truth, but you do it in an aggressively nice way so that the person can hear it and so that you can make change. And I think that when you do that in the workplace, when you do that in organizations, when you do that in your home, when you do that in your community, when you have the kindness to tell the truth, but do it nicely to, you know, have the express the best of intentions, good things come and happen from that. Yeah, we can we can disagree without thinking that the person you're talking to is evil. You just have a different opinion. Absolutely. And through having by by being kind, you will be able to then have the conversation to figure out where you might actually have common ground. You might only be seeing differences, but you might in fact have common ground and then you can make progress and change. And I think that that's so important. So one of my favorite hashtags, because, you know, I worked at Instagram, <laughs> have to talk about the hashtag sure. is hashtag be kind. And I just think that anything related to um, kindness is so, so important to have front yeah. and center. And it's all in our control, too. It's all within our control. Yeah. Thanks yeah. for ending us on a on a optimistic note. Yeah, that's one of my favorite answers to that we've had so far. Thank, thank you for you. doing that. Marnie, thank you thank so much you. for spending the time with us this morning. I know you're incredibly busy, so we we can't thank you enough. Um, be sure to follow uh, Marnie on Instagram, obviously, at Marnie Levine. <laughs> thank you for having me here. This is my first podcast, so I will always remember. Oh, <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're honored. Thank you. Thank you. Learn how the Bush Institute is promoting education, healthcare, and economic opportunity for women around the world at bushcenter.org slash women. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.